online welcome as well. Um, I do have a book recommendation for you all this morning. It kind of goes along, well, it goes along with the passage, but not necessarily with, with the message, at least not directly. Um, and this book is titled uh, God's Design for Man and Woman, a Biblical Theological Survey. So it's, it's by a, a couple, Andreas Kostenberger and his wife, uh, Margaret, um, and it does an excellent job of assessing, evaluating what does Scripture from Genesis to Revelation teach about the roles of men and women, both in the church and in uh, society. It does a great job of dealing with uh, the objections or the tensions that are pr- uh, presented in the, in the various uh, texts that speak to this, um, as well as uh, providing or clarifying the liberty that is granted to the church um, on this uh, topic. So um, if you're looking for a good book to read on the topic, this is it. Uh, this is the one I recommend. Again, it's uh, God's Design for Man and Woman. All right, before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity for us to, to gather. We ask that you would help us to hear your word, help us to be grateful that we are able to gather, we are able to come together, that we are able to sing songs of praise, that we have the opportunity to be encouraged and to be edified uh, this morning. Help us not to waste it, help us to be faithful stewards for what is before us, Father. So this morning, may your spirit in your word teach, convict, edify and equip as necessary so that we would be sanctified and that we would be able to glorify you, Father, um, in all that we do. And we ask this, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there's uh, our text this morning. There's a lot of drama uh, wrapped around uh, wrapped around it, uh, baggage that was never meant to be carried with it. Um, and this baggage can make it hard uh, to remain faithful to the text without going down some path that the text uh, never uh, goes down. Uh, this is where expositional preaching, when done faithfully and, and done diligently, um, is so valuable. Um, expositional preaching helps us to stay grounded in the text. It helps us to stay away from our biases or our sensitivities uh, to preach something that the text isn't preaching, that the text isn't teaching. It's not that it's not necessarily that it's not true. It could be very true, but it's not what the text is teaching. Uh, Expositional preaching helps us uh, from not preaching within our our own echo chambers every Sunday. Now, I I say this because I've I've written this, I've rewritten, I should say, a good portion of this sermon a number of times this week. Uh, Three exact, no, actually four. I had three versions. The version I'm on now is the fourth version because as I was preparing the message, I found myself going down these paths uh, that the text essentially does not go down. Uh, But the reason I was going down there was because society often goes down these paths. Uh, People within the church often go down these paths when we deal with Judges 4. They they use Deborah in a way that she's never meant to be used, or or they speak on topics that though what they say about those topics, for example, the roles of men and women in the church, though it may be true, this isn't the passage for that. So uh, today, so I should say when you look on the back of your bulletin, you're going to see the verses I put there 
a bunch of them I don't, I don't use. And then I use a few that aren't, aren't on there. And just to encourage you all, uh, this fourth revision shortened my sermon by a good 10 minutes. All right, so if you haven't already, go ahead and open up to Judges 4. If you need a Bible, we got Bibles underneath the seats around you. Uh, this morning, we're looking at a well-known judge, Deborah, and two lesser-known individuals, Barak and Jael. Now, this is interesting that Deborah is the more well-known, and she's probably the second most well-known judge next to uh, Samson. Uh, and that's because Barak, he gets mentioned twice outside of Judges 4 and 5. He gets mentioned in 1 Samuel 12, 11 and Hebrews eleven thirty two, While Deborah or Jael, neither one of them gets mentioned outside of Judges 4 and 5. When this account is over, their time in Scripture is also over. Deborah, as popular as she is, she's often misunderstood, and sometimes she is abused by the church uh, today for a variety of reasons. Often she's portrayed as a leader of God's people, a judge, or, or a warrior princess. Sometimes she's portrayed as a feminist activist in the midst of a male-dominated and male-oppressive society. But what we should be considering is, well, how does God actually portray her? What does his word say? What is true and what is not? We need to cut through all those weeds and see how God speaks of her. So as we seek to answer these questions and more, what would help us in answering these questions is to keep in mind why Judges is written. What is the theme of Judges? What's the purpose that the author has written Judges? And to remind ourselves of that, again, it's, it's the author writes Judges. He, remember, it's not historical account. It's not for the purpose of retelling the history of Israel. It's, it's, it's a theological lesson. The author wants to show the depravity of Israel during this time of history, while highlighting God's sovereignty and covenantal faithfulness. And speaking of history, in case you're unaware of the time frame that we're in, we're at the back end of the 13th century B.C., uh, sometime around 1209 B.C., roughly. Um, and this is about 100 years on from uh, where we were uh, last week in chapter 3 from Ehud and, and, and Shamgar. Now, I have our text this morning broken into three key sections, uh, verses 1 through 5, which introduces us to Deborah and the situation that Israel finds itself in, followed by verses 6 through 10, which sets the stage for the coming battle, then verses 12 through 24, which gives us the battle and the outcome. Now, if you're wondering where verse 11 is, we will still cover it, we'll still read it. Uh, but as you will see, it's, it's kind of on its own. It just kind of sets the stage for that uh, last section. It's more like a, a footnote or a sidebar to the rest of the text. Now, after dealing with each of these sections, uh, we will briefly consider what is the author trying to show us and what should we be doing in light of it. So let's go ahead and begin with verse 1 of Judges, of, excuse me, of Judges 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh after Ehud died. So right there, right, we talked about the steps of the cycle last week. Right there, when we see that it, people of Israel, the sons of Israel, again did what was evil in the sight and the eyes of Yahweh, we should be thinking this is a new cycle. It's another cycle. And so we should be anticipating uh, what follows, an oppressor, God's judgment, a deliverer, so forth. And that's where we get verse 2. Yahweh sold them into the hand of 
Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army of Sisera, who lived in Harashat Hagoyim. So Jabin here is probably a dynastic name, a name of royalty, rather than an actual personal name. If you recall from Joshua chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, we have Jabin, king of Canaan there, of Hazor, and there he is killed. King of Jabin is killed. He, the, the kingdom is, is destroyed. Uh, Hazor is, is destroyed. Uh, but apparently, since that time, it's, it's been rebuilt. And another king of Canaan has arisen. And so this appears to be a dynastic name. And if you're curious, well, do we have other examples in Scripture of dynastic names? Uh, we do. For example, uh, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. When we go through kings, Ben-Hadad is a familiar um, name for the king of Syria, yet we see it at different points of history. Thus, it's a dynastic name. Uh, so if, if you, you can think of royalty of England, often when a king or a queen ascends to the throne, they have the option to take on a new name, a, a royal name, a name that is uh, familiar with the throne, and, that, and they don't have to hold on to their personal name. Oftentimes, though, they are given a name that's already connected to royalty. Now, Sisera is from Harashat Hogoyim, um, and quite literally, it, it means people of the sea, um, but scholars believe it actually means like cultivated field of the, the Gentiles. Now, I don't know exactly how they get that, um, but they do. I'm not that up on my Hebrew to explain that, and it probably doesn't really matter for our purposes uh, this morning. Uh, the location of it um, is unknown, but clearly it, it's probably up in that area. The name Sisera is possibly a Hurrian name. So if you remember Shamgar, his name was probably Hurrian. Um, it could possibly be a Hittite name. Um, it could possibly also be a name of the Sea Peoples, that is, um, an early uh, form of the Philistines. So continuing on, verse 3. Then the people, the sons of Israel, cried out to Yahweh for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron. And remember Judges 1 we read about how the problem of, of iron chariots kept the people of Israel from conquering certain portions of the land. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lebedoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So the palm, the tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel is quite likely a reference to the oak of weeping in Genesis 35, 8. Right, remember there, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she's buried under the oak. And there the name of that oak was the oak of weeping. So the palm of, of Deborah is not associated with the judge. I mean, we could probably see the association. Deborah is well known. Maybe the palm's named for her. But no, Deborah is just sitting under the tree of her namesake. Uh, Rebecca's nurse. And so this is just outside of Bethel. The Oak of Weeping is just below Bethel, so uh, Deborah is in the vicinity of it. Now, what was Deborah exactly doing here? The, the text says that she was judging, and Deborah is the only judge in the book of Judges where this term is explicitly used. However, it's most likely that she's not judging in the judicial sense. That is, it's not like she's having court and she's hearing arguments for a case and then she's passing a decision on that case. It's not exactly what the Hebrew word here means and it's not what the context uh, gives us um, either. 
the word here has a better sense of governing or, or leading, but that still begs the question, well, in what capacity? Well, note how she is described in verse 4, right? Context will always help us understand. She's a prophetess. In other words, she, she's a mouthpiece for God. God speaks through her to his people. And consider the context. In verse 3, that the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, they're crying out to Yahweh for help. And then in verse 5, the sons of Israel come up to her for judgment. In other words, the sons of Israel who have cried out to Yahweh in verse 3 have come to this prophetess, Deborah, in verse 5, to hear what Yahweh has said in regard, in regard to them crying out. In other words, what they want to know is, what's Yahweh's judgment on the matter of which that they have cried out about? It's, it's not as if the text is trying to tell us that the people of Israel, they regularly come up to Deborah for judgment, right? In verse 5, this isn't an a act or, or the sense that this is what they do regularly. They regularly come up to Deborah for judgment. It's not a, and it's not like Deborah randomly, as the people of Israel coming to her for judgment, that she randomly says, hey, go get Barak. That that's not the, the picture that's being painted for us. The picture is, is that the people have cried out to Yahweh, and they want to know from Deborah, the prophetess, how Yahweh is going to respond. What is Yahweh's judgment on their situation? Will he do anything? So, the, so she gives them an answer. But before we get to the answer, I do want us to consider Deborah and the fact that she's a woman a little bit more. I don't want to gloss over this. Uh, Deborah is not the first woman to be called a prophetess, nor will she be the last. If you recall, Miriam, Moses' sister, was a prophetess, right? Exodus 15, 20. Uh, and, and remember, Aaron is the brother of Moses. So when we talk about the sister of Aaron, that makes her the sister of Moses. In 2 Kings 22, we read of good King Josiah inquiring of the prophetess Hulda. And then in Luke 2, we read of the prophetess Anna in Jerusalem. So God uses women for his glory and for the sake of his people just as much as he uses men. Though he often does so differently. Not lesser nor greater, but differently. For different purposes, at different times, for different reasons. After all, Women, like men, bear the image of God. And they, like men, were created to, alongside men, to subdue the earth and to fill the earth with their offspring. Now, beyond the prophets, we see God using women to bless his people in other ways. Uh, we can think of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25, who with her bravery and wisdom kept David from blood guilt. Or Dorcas of Acts 9, noted for her charity and good works towards the church. And then there are many more women that we could uh, talk about, uh, but again, that's not the purpose of our text, nor do we have the time to cover all of them. And even today, in the church today, in, in the 21st century, God still uses women for the sake of his people and for the sake of his name. Here, I hope, we're blessed immensely by the women of this church. We have a good number of women who serve on our ministry teams while also serving in their homes. Many others serve the church through their acts of fellowship, hospitality, and prayer. They are certainly not absent at all from the activity of the church. Now, what Deborah is doing here in our text this morning is certainly worthy of praise. I mean, she is certainly one of the better portrayed, if not 
best portrayed judges of the book. There's nothing negative said about her at all. All of the other judges, we could almost pick at least one character flaw, one thing that's like, well, that's not righteous, that's not holy, but not with Deborah. But a question remains. Why are the sons of Israel going to her and not the priests? Why is the Urim and Thummim that is worn by the high priest not being consulted? Often when, when, we, when, we, when you go through the Pentateuch, like Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, even in Kings or in Samuel, when Israel goes to battle, they go to the high priest and they consult the Urim and Thummim that the high priest wears. Why is it not being consulted? After all, Deborah is just outside of Bethel, and in Bethel, at this point of Israel's time, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. So surely the high priest would be available. The Ark of the Covenant is, is there, but they don't go there. They go to Deborah. The fact that Deborah is the voice on such a national matter, a crisis, reveals the impotence of the priesthood during these dark days of Israel. So let's go ahead and read the judgment that Deborah has for the sons of Israel that the sons of Israel came to hear. And I have a picture of, of Mount Tabor, which is going to come into play here. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor? And so that's a picture of Mount Tabor. You can see why, why it would be a good gathering place. It, it rises high above the land around it. You can see it from all over from the lands that she's just, just described. And this is uh, from the, the, the south looking north. And so this is the Jezreel uh, Valley. Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Brock said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So you can see how when we go back to uh, verses uh, 3 and 5, the sons of Israel come to Deborah for judgment. Um, it, again, it's for a very specific judgment, a very specific uh, situation there. This isn't like a regular ongoing deal, uh, because it would just be weird if they're coming there like on the regular basis, and then she just randomly talks about this. Uh, and she's calling Barak. They're coming for a specific uh, situation, and she gives them a very specific judgment from God on the matter. And that judgment involves Barak, a man, an Israelite, right, to, to lead the people into battle, to lead the people of Israel. We have Deborah, who the people are listening to, but Deborah steps aside, and she calls a man to lead God's people. However, Deborah, a woman, is instrumental in ensuring that Barak answers the call. And this is to Barak's and Israel's shame. This isn't a shame on Deborah. Far from it. Deborah is, 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 is in part glorified through this. She is praised through this. But it is a shame on Barak and Israel. See, it should be a priest that should be going out with Barak, with the Ark of the Covenant. 
but apparently the priesthood was in such rough shape they were no longer viewed as mediators and representatives of Yahweh, both by the people and, and God himself. Barak doesn't say, well, let me get the priests. Let me get the Ark of the Covenant to, to come. No, he's asking Deborah, a woman, a faithful, godly woman, to go with him. This lack of involvement of the religious men of Israel and this hesitation of Barak shows and represents the failure of men to do what God has ordained the men of Israel to do, to lead Israel, both spiritually and socially, politically, militarily. Uh, Deborah's involvement in Barak's desire for her to come along is an indictment against Barak, the priesthood, and all of Israel. Just as it was an indictment last week in chapter 3 against Israel when God used two non-Israelites and one not-ideal Benjamite to deliver his people. This time, the author, he takes it up a notch and uses women to deliver his people. And one woman will receive the glory of the battle. So let's continue with uh, verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Sananim, which is near Kadesh. Now this is uh, simply uh, background info to uh, set up uh, the climax for what is to, to come. The author introduces the Kenite here, but doesn't come back to it until we get to uh, Jael. And the Kenites should be familiar with us, right? Our first judge, Othniel, he is a Kenite. And remember, Kenites, uh, they settled um, in the south, so uh, by, by Deber. And, and this Kenite, however, he had separated from his clan for one reason or another. We're not told why, but he's up in the north um, by the king of Canaan's uh, territory. It's, it's somewhere near Mount Tabor. Now let's read of this coming battle. I mean, I have a map uh, we can put up, and we'll have the map up as I read, uh, so you can use it for reference of some of these locations are rough guesses, educated guesses. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harashet Hergoyim to the river Kishon. Now, the river Kishon, if you're unfamiliar with it, it drains the Jezreel Valley, right? It's not most times it's not a rushing river. It, it's, it's often just a little creek. Sometimes it can actually be dry depending on how much rain uh, the Jezreel Valley uh, gets. Um, it starts in the hills of northern Samaria near Megiddo and flows northwestward towards the Mediterranean uh, where it empties out uh, by the foot of Mount Carmel. Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Does not Yahweh go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And Yahweh routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before, before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Notice who defeats Sisera and his army here in verse 15. It is Yahweh. It is God. He is the one who defeats the enemy. He is the one who routes them. It's by his power, by his might. It is by his sovereign hand. This is how Barak is able to cut them down 
by the sword, and this is how it is for all judges, and as well as all who are called by God into his services, by the power, by his might. Now, there is a translation discrepancy uh, that I want us to note here in verse 15. Um, if you were to look at the CSB or older translations like the King James, um, instead of verse 15 saying that Yahweh routed, it says Yahweh threw in a panic Sisera and his chariots, um, which is a more literal translation. Now, why might this matter? The outcome is the same, but it might matter because it's the same Hebrew expression used earlier in Exodus 14, verses 24 and 25. There in Exodus 14, 24 and 25, we read, In the morning watch, Yahweh and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Into a panic. Same Hebrew expression there as it is here in Judges 4. Clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. What's the context here? We have an enemy of Israel pursuing Israel in the midst of a body of water, the Red Sea, with chariots, just like the army of Sisera, chariots. And they're also by a body of water, the river of Kishon. And in Judges 5.21 in the Song of Deborah, Deborah specifically connects the river of Kishon, what happened there, to what happened at the Red Sea. She says the torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. So therefore, some would speculate that the author is intentionally using this same expression to indicate how the river or how God routed, defeated the army of Sisera. He somehow used the river to sweep away or to make the chariots ineffective. Maybe they couldn't move. Maybe the wheels were clogged like the Egyptians. Hence why Sisera gets off his chariots and runs away. That might be why he gets away on foot rather than chariot. Clearly a chariot would be faster. Or maybe he's thinking, well, if I run on foot, I'll go away unnoticed with the fog of war. Chariot's not going to be as, uh, going on foot's not going to be as noticeable as a chariot's fleeing. But with Judges 5.21, this expression that's connected to Exodus, seems quite likely that God actually did something using the river to make the chariots ineffective, thus throwing them into a panic. So what ends up happening to Sisera? Well, let's read on. Verse 16, Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hereshet Hogoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So Barak, he doesn't pursue Sisera. He pursues the numbers. He's chasing the army. I mean, one might think, well, this is Deborah's moment. If she's a warrior princess, right? This is her moment to take advantage. Sestra has run on foot. He's no longer surrounded by his army. So this is, she's the woman that God is going to deliver Sestra to. But as we continue to read, we'll actually see that Deborah, she's gone from the scene. She doesn't come back until she sings her song in, in Judges four, 5. She never engages in the battle. She never picks up a weapon that we know of. She's, she's gone. She has exited stage left. Verse 17, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenites. For there was peace. There was shalom. There was a, a covenant, like a treaty between Heber, the Kenites, and Jabin, the king of Hazor. And so here, Sisera, has, he's fleeing to friendly territory. 
He's fleeing in a direction where he knows he has friends, or he's supposed to have friends. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. So Jael here, note the hospitality that she's offering. She's being super friendly to him, calming him down. His adrenaline's pumping, his heart's racing. She's like, relax, don't be afraid. You're amongst friends. Come in. She's going to calm him down by putting a rug on him, right? We all love to be, well, some of us like to be hugged. We like, we like, or like, we just like having a heavy blanket on us, right? It's, it's good, it's comforting, helps calms the senses down. She, she's doing that by putting a rug on him. She, he asks for water, and she goes above and beyond and gives him milk, something better, something more refreshing, and, and, she, and he drinks the milk. So she's really causing him to put his defenses down, to, to help him relax, and so much so that he goes to sleep. Tells her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if anyone comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, the wife of the man that is at peace with King Jabin, she takes a tent peg, a hammer in her hand, goes over to him softly as not to disturb him, and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. In case there's any doubt, the text tells us, so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So here we see it's not Deborah that gets the glory. It's this Kenite, this non-Israelite woman, Jael, who gets this glory. And Sisera, I mean, Barak, when he comes, when he's pursuing Sisera, more than likely his army's with him. So there's a contingent of men who are hearing this, seeing this, and they all see Jael gets the glory. So what does all of this tell us? Well, again, let us be faithful. Let us consider the context. Let's consider chapter 3, right? We saw the author highlighting chapter 3, the shame of Israel, by God using non-Israelite men and a less-than-ideal Benjamite. And now he takes it up a notch using women. Last week, a fair question would have been, where are the good Israelites? Out of all the Benjamites, and recall, what does Benjamin mean? The son of the right hand. And out of all the sons of the right hand, wasn't there at least one right-handed man? that God could have used instead of the left-handed man, Ehud? This week, the author's highlighting, the question the author highlighting is this, where are the good Israelite men? The work of Deborah and Jael, though it is to their glory, it is to the shame of Israel. It's another indictment against the people. And today, that's the question for us. Where are the men today? Where are the men in the church? Where are they in our families, in society? Are they doing what they are called to do by God? Maybe, maybe not. Certainly some men are faithful, and certainly some are not. 
But here is the thing. For us today, on this side of the resurrection, in the new covenant, regardless of how well or how poorly the men are doing what they are called to do, or, or yeah, how well, how poorly they are, they can't save you. However, one man can. If you trust in and follow the one true man, Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, he will save you. He will deliver you from your enemy, from your sin, and you will not taste death. Men of this age, this age of sin and death, men will be weak, and they will be cowardly at times. They are fallible people. They will fail, and at times they have failed. But God, the Father, he is infallible. His love is everlasting, and his covenantal faithfulness is true and pure. So church, when men do fail, whether in their roles here within the church or at home, or maybe they have failed you already, and they have left their marks, their bruises upon you, scars, Maybe it was an abusive father, an abusive husband. Maybe it was an abusive pastor. Don't let such men cause you to lose sight of the one true father. Continue to look to his son, Jesus Christ. Stay faithful. Cry out to him. Wait for him to act. Await him to deliver you. Sons of Adam may fail you, but the son of God will not. And men, when you consider your role, your call by God to lead your family, to lead society, to lead within the church, consider not your weaknesses, your shortcomings, but consider and look to the perfect man who lacks nothing and gives you all that you need to be faithful, remembering that as you go out to do battle day to day, like Deborah was with Barak, he is with you. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He does it, you don't. And don't let your past to define who you are now. Right, you might be thinking, I'm a horrible person. I've done this or that. Or I have failed as a father, as a husband, whatever it may be. Don't let the past to define you. Be the man God has called you to be. And remember that you have been washed, that you have been cleansed, not by your work, not by the whatever you think you've done to make up for it, but by his blood. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So men, don't hesitate like Barak. Know that he is with you and that he has given you this day and every other day that you breathe on this earth. So know 2 Timothy 1.7. You don't know 2 Timothy 1.7. Commit it to your memory. Commit it to your heart. Remember that he has given you a spirit of power, of love. So you won't be abusive with this power. You won't be um, domineering with this power. You will love the ones that God has called you to love. He's given you a spirit of self-control. We all must remember that God will hold all of us accountable. Men, we will be held accountable for how we treat the daughters of God, how we love the daughters of God. And women, you will be accountable for how you submit to the sons 
of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for this reminder and this warning. Father, we ask that you would forgive us our, our sins. We ask that for the men of this church who have perhaps been apathetic, lazy, weak, hesitant, unsure, perhaps they've been doubtful um, in, in their roles that you've called them to be. Give them zeal, give them truth, give them love, give them your spirit and that they can be the men that you've called them to be um, both in their homes, at their workplaces, and within the church. May they model uh, the life of Christ, the love of Christ uh, that you've called them to, to those uh, around them and in their lives. And, and be with, with, with the women as well and that they can know how they can encourage and support uh, the, the men of this church faithfully uh, without um, undermining them, Father. Father, we, we thank you that you work through both men and women, uh, that you have given the royal priesthood to both, though our, our roles are different at times. We thank you that uh, you work through all of us. And so help us to submit to one another out of reverence in Christ. Help us to uh, be wise in what this looks like. May we be willing to have conversations about what this looks like, especially in the midst of a, a society and age that is so against uh, what you have ordained. Help us to know how to articulate this to an unbelieving world and to even an unbelieving uh, church. Uh, give us the courage, to the boldness to, to stand the ground on your word, to draw the line uh, so that we can be a healthy church that thrives under your blessing as we seek to fulfill the roles that you've given each and every one of us here, Father. Father, help us to know your word all the more Help us to walk with one another in this. And we ask that in this, Father, that you'd bless uh, the, the table that's before us, the bread and the cup, and that as we come to, your ta to the table, uh, that you would make aware to us our sins, that we would confess our sins, that we would, by your Spirit, with confidence, confess them and know that we are forgiven um, and that our forgiveness, our justification, is all by the work of your Son in whom we have faith, Father. So may we be encouraged as we come to the table so that as we go out from here, Father, that we would glorify you in all that we would do. Father, we ask these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.